And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando coming to you live and direct from the beautiful state of Jefferson up here on the Smith River where it is flowing high. We've had record rainfall this October into November or this November now. Man, time is flying. Um, but wonderful snow-capped mountains, and I'm ready to hit the slopes. I was just talking to Alex Zek uh, about uh, hitting some slopes. Maybe have Matt Belair come join us for some snowboarding bear. be great to have you uh, jump on your skis if you can maybe knock the rust off them a bit. And um, I don't believe you gentlemen could uh, keep up with me, but we'll give it a crow. Yeah, it's um, that would be so much fun, man, to do that. Um, as uh, Alec is sorry, Isla, we have to do the testosterone thing here first. <laughs> you know, Mike and I have a little thing going, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Bear, I can um, hobble around in the ski boots with the poles, um, while I cruise up with my board. We got to get you on a snowboard, that would be fun. I think you I would really enjoy it. I spent my whole life surfing. So when I took up skiing, uh, you know, I wanted to do a, t a different technical skill. Yeah. And, you know, when you're surfing, everything's moving. It's three dimensional. When you're on a mountain, it's it's rigid. So I just couldn't imagine ruining the surfing experience by doing it on a on a stable, you know. That's a very, very valid point. And I will give you I'll mm -hmm. give you points on that one. Um, well, yeah, so pumped here. Uh, we're in, uh, we're freedom still reigns supreme up here in the state of Jefferson. We have people moving up. So blessed. Uh, we have Shannon on the land now there, which is great. And she's uh, going to be a massive help. And uh, yeah, uh, going to come help you in that greenhouse too. So uh, holler at me on that. Um, a couple of little day. <clears throat> Saturday. Uh, well, um, looking to golf maybe on Saturday too. So it'd be great to have you join us maybe for some golf with my pops. We have a, a wonderful little nine hole tucked away in the redwoods here in the forest, <clears throat> right by the Smith river. Let's play some golf and, uh, we'll uh, write that off as an alpha Vedic, uh, meeting. Like there. I was, uh, like I was telling you yesterday, Michael, as long as it's not one of these, uh, nouveau golf courses with dress codes if i can go out and wear my flip-flops and tank top i'll be with you <laughs> awesome let's make it happen um and there's a couple little points uh, uh a biz um <clears throat> i might as well announce it right now here and ayla i'm after the show i want to uh i want to invite you um not to put you on the spot here but i'd love to have you involved with this event um it's called the event and we're putting it on with Alex Zek and uh, Health Freedom for Humanity, Josh Del Sol Reunion Summit, and uh, Devin Vrana from The Big Idea. Uh, they put together the symposium uh, in Kansas City not too long ago through Health Freedom for, for Humanity. And of course, Josh and I did Reunion Summit last year. We're all coming together to throw the event this winter solstice. Uh, it will be a fully immersive, interactive uh, uh, online summit where you as the uh, attendees will be um, really um, the focus in terms of it's all based on mindset and based on the inner to outer development of the awake community here that we're all involved with so that we can develop ourselves and then develop together as a community to start creating the new. So very, very exciting. Um, we already have some very uh, big names and friends that have agreed to come on. This has all come together in the last couple of weeks. So it's called The Event, and we will be doing the official announcement in probably early next week. Uh, but very, very exciting. Dr. Bear Lando will be uh, a featured speaker. And uh, Bear, I look forward to um, having you on that live stream. We'll um, 
go everywhere. I'd love to talk about the uh, inner milieu in terms of um, frequencies, in terms of resonance and getting beyond. This is all about spirit over, over materialism, getting beyond um, the bugs, as you say, and the germs and all that stuff and moving forward into the new, the new kind of thinking in terms of who we are as consciousness and how uh, true health and wellness works. And then, of course, how that relates to everything we do here, right? Science, agriculture, it's all holistic, all, all uh, intertwined and all about sovereignty. So uh, that's going to be really exciting. Uh, and then, um, yeah, Bear, anything else to update before we bring Ayla on and dive deep into natural birthing and everything she's up to? No, it's just, uh, just a beautiful day here. And, you know, we're looking forward to really launching um, a number of uh, projects for the winter that we don't have any time for when we're out there, you know, working outside in the farm. And um, also, uh, uh, my wife, uh, my beloved Deb, is uh, uh, going to be weighing in a little bit more this uh, winter, and she's already in cahoots with other powerful women that are going to start maybe doing their own little, uh, you know, presentations and things to kind of balance you and I out here, Mike. And uh, I think you'll even see her on Telegram today, which uh, imagine Deb on electronics. That's that's uh, <laughs> That's a milestone, but uh, she wants to be more engaged. So yeah, we're uh, this winter is going to be a very creative time. We're going to start getting a lot of content that we've been threatening to do for a long time, but just we haven't had time. So all good stuff. I'll let you uh, take it away with the intro there. Yes, thank you. And real quick, we have a, a someone on the comment saying the metaverse is coming soon. This is all part of it. We're actually ground everything in the real. So even the summit coming up will be convert will be basically moving towards the movement, which is all based around thought leaders having a platform that's decentralized, that's not controlled by a centralized corporation that will then allow people in the real, in the physical, like we do here on the farm, come together and create the new organic world that we want to be a part of. So cynicism is has some um, some purpose, but ignorance doesn't. Okay. Ayla Cuenca, so excited to have her on today. Every birth is unique. Prepa be prepared for yours, quote unquote. Imagine our world if all incoming live streams experience the birthing process free of fear and medical interventions counterintuitive to the knowledge lying deep within each woman. No other life event rivals the significance of our entry into this realm, nor has the lasting impact through the duration of a lifetime. Ayla Cuenca has lived and traveled throughout the United States in several countries, accumulating knowledge and ex expertise in her field that spans over a decade. Her work strives to connect women, parents, and children through the scope of conception, birth, and parenting. As a birth guide, she draws on a blend of ancient traditions and evidence-based information to bring custom-tailored support to every individual, no matter where they are in their process. As a teacher, birth guide, and visual storyteller, Ayla offers natural birth classes, prenatal and postpartum guidance, consultations, Reiki energy healing, documentary birth photography, and highly individualized birth doula support. She provides support in person and online so that anyone anywhere in the world has the opportunity for empowered birth education and guidance. Ayla, welcome. So lovely to have you today. Uh, Bear, um, this will be a fun topic, huh? I'll let you kind of start it off. and then oh, I'm, I'm completely stoked. You know, I can't tell you, uh, Ayla, how uh, appreciative I, I am to have you here. 
uh, you have such an important role to play, especially today. And uh, I can't tell you over the years and even escalating in present time, how many people call me and say, hey, I want to have a kid or I'm pregnant. And how the heck do I do it? I don't even want to go into a hospital. You know, they're afraid to go there. And I think rightfully so. So it's it's such a critical thing. And as I wrote in the beginning of that intro, you know, this is uh, the entry of an incoming soul, you know, a, a conscious life stream onto this plane, into this realm. And, uh, you know, we're met with uh, some pretty harsh techniques and folks that are trained to just, you know, treat it like a medical condition. So, um, you know, what you're doing is so vital. Um, back when I had my kids, you know, starting in the 70s, I delivered them right at home. And, uh, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And that was before it was trendy and everything. And, um, you know, so in that, when we were preparing for that, and when we elected to do that, you know, I, of course, studied uh, many sources from around the world, and, and especially in, I believe, Denmark, there was a book that's probably out of print now, but that uh, really had the analytics about the fewer issues uh, that are encountered in the birthing process when it's done naturally versus from a medical orientation so, um, so fantastic. You know, I, I told you I wanted to tell you a little story to start things out here today. And uh, for my cert, one of my certifications, uh, it was uh, at Stanford Medical Hospital. And I, that's where I did my internship. And I had to deliver so many babies in order to, you know, fulfill my, my whole internship there. So on day one, uh, you know, here I'm like back there in my 20s and, and I'm sitting in this doctor lounge with all these Stanford doctors and everything. And uh, it happened to be football uh, playoff time. And so, of course, there's about four or five of us. We're in the back room there and, uh, you know, all the screens are going. They're watching the playoff games. And I was there from pretty early morning till, you know, late afternoon and the entire time, nurses were popping their heads in periodically. And doctor, you know, we have this happening in room such and such and so forth. There's about a good dozen births that were imminent. And, you know, the doctors really couldn't be bothered. They're like, yeah, 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 deal with it. Okay, so now it's about four o'clock. The games are all concluding. You know, the doctors are start looking at their watches and calling their wives. What are we doing tonight? And that sort of thing. And um, within, I would say, 45 minutes, all those women that were cubicled in all these places were delivered and out of there. And so within, uh, you know, that short time period, period, they, you know, just chemically induced Pitocin, um, uh, C-section, you know, and, and it just the babies were out of there and the doctors were, you know, back to their home business. So and. Back then, you know, I hadn't yet done all my alternative training and I was a little bit more conventional, but I was just shocked at the callousness of these doctors. And um, it just left a lasting impression on me. And of course, so one of the things that led me to make my decision to deliver my own damn kids, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, uh, welcome. Thank you so much. And, you know, our audience really enjoys uh, hearing uh uh, from our guests, you know, how they got to where they're at in life and, you know, what drew them into, you know, their particular passion. So maybe if you could start out with a little brief history like that, it'd be awesome. Sure. And yeah. thank you again. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor. 
Um, and for sharing that story. Wow. Uh, nothing surprising about it, unfortunately, but it's still, mm -hmm. still kind of the same. Um, yeah. So my mother is a homeopath in Santa Cruz and uh, growing up, my stepfather is, uh, was an OMD. And so I just grew up in this environment where um, we were looking at things alternatively to put it in a very general way. And for me, birth didn't seem like a pathological condition. Even from a young age, it did not seem pathological to me. Um, you know, there's a really strong uh, midwifery community in Santa Cruz. And so, you know, one of my friends, her mother, she was always off to births. And so it was just kind of part of the way things flowed there. And then when I went out into the world, and went to college and was studying anthropology, you know, I went deeper into understanding normal physiological birth. Um, and then through ethnographic photography and observing um, just the way that humans interact, I began doing birth photography. And that's kind of like that the segue into, into the birth world and into becoming an educator and a doula and eventually um, a medical freedom advocate. Um, it's, it, you have to, if, I mean, to not become a medical freedom advocate and be working in birth, I think one has to be completely like unaware or sleeping, you know, uh, there's no way that you can see what you see when you're supporting women in birth, especially in hospitals and not, you know, raise a flag. Um, so that's part of the issue though, that's, that's happening now is just a lot of complacency and, um, Anyway, so that's, that's how I arrived <laughs> where I'm at today. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here talking to you guys. What a great background with, uh, with your parents being in the uh, alternative medical field. And so you didn't have to go through as much unlearning as uh, the rest of us probably, huh? Yeah, no, thankfully they were giving me like David Icke books when I was 11. So it was like, <laughs> I just, I was like, this is the way the world is. Right. And then wow. I moved out and was like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, but it, it, it's so interesting how, when I went out into the world, this like ancestral um, dichotomy came up or this duality, I should say, where it's like, I know, but I can't speak because I'll be burned at the stake. Right. Which is like something I've been <laughs> working through now. I'm healing for all the women in, in my, in my ancestry, but it's, it was that it was like going into this liberal arts college. Right. Where it's like, Oh, these are liberals, right? Like everybody is a free thinker, but not really. Um, and so, yeah, I had to kind of keep those things to myself and like try to find my people, but also like, figure out how to function in the world. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey. Yeah. Liberal doesn't quite mean what it used to be. You know, uh, on our last episode, we're. Yeah. I remember uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I always thought I was a liberal and, uh, but I didn't sign up for what they're talking about these days. No. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. And uh, by the way, the United States is not supposed to be a liberal democracy. Okay, right. people, it's a constitutional republic, <laughs> right? Um, it's supposed to be built on virtue, right? Um, these somehow we've lost these concepts, right? Um, it's just mind boggling the ignorance that we wade through in academia. And, uh, and I know, Ayla, so Ayla, did you say what school you went to? I went to Bennington College in Vermont. Vermont, yes, I was just, yes. Yeah. Um, in Bernie bro land. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, we were, that's the one. We were just we just had our co-op meeting over uh, on Monday. We have a um, a wonderful online co-op, and uh, we have a gal who just inherited a ton of land in Vermont, and she was just saying that same thing, right, Bear? Like these, it's interesting how liberals there can be so open-minded about um, you know uh, raw milk and uh, you know permaculture, but then masked up and jab jibby jabbed. Uh, there's just a really weird disconnect there. Uh, it, it's just mind boggling and it's part of the mind control. It's part of the whole issue we have with li liberal democracy, mob rule. It's, you know, and all that. So, uh, yeah. not to get us yeah. off track, but it's, uh, uh, it actually, it ties in Mike, because most of the midwives that I know and have worked with for years are totally part of like subscribing to the agenda, so to speak. Like there are maybe two that are not, and it's really quiet. You know, but otherwise it's like, of course, like avoid the medical industrial complex, women's rights, free birthing. And then they're like, you're they're like, free, you're not wearing you know, your mask, baby, baby <laughs> rights, but aborted fetal cells in the jab that we're going to be putting in kids. That's cool. Like, right. Is my body, just, my choice, but then not when it comes to this. Is it lack of information or what? Is it mind control? What do you think's going on? Here? I think it's just a, it's just a basic identity politics. And I think there's a cognitive dissonance that happens where it's like, well, I believe everything up into a point, but if I don't agree with this benediction or this jibby jab, then I suddenly can't subscribe to my previous politics. And that's like too much for them, you know? Um, the philosophical underpinnings of democ what is a Democrat or a liberal, like it challenges that. And when you've associated that with yourself your whole life, I mean, like I grew up with progressive Democrats and it wasn't until I went to Bennington that I was like, whoa, there's something really wrong <laughs> happening here, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it just took a lot of, of um, dismantling and rebuilding. And that just takes that just takes too much energy and effort for a lot of people. So it's easier to say, like, this works, that doesn't work. And I'm just going to kind of sidestep until somebody exposes me. And I think that's what's yeah. happening here. I, I think it goes very deep. You know, it's a very, um, a very uh, by design, uh, hypnotic entrainment. And right. we could do an entire podcast as far as how that is a fact and how they accomplish that. So a lot of these people that you talk to where there's just no light behind the eyes, you know, I, I get where they're at. They're just they're They've lost control of their own faculties. And that, that's the absolute truth. So uh, back to uh, birthing. Can you, for uh, our audience, it doesn't uh, maybe know the distinctions between the different types of uh, birthing coaches. You know, we have doula, we have midwives, we have, you know, oh. uh, could you just maybe run us sure. through that? Sure. Yeah. So a doula is a, basically an emotional and physical support person or a coach, you know, and we work with families and women in any setting, hospitals, free birthing, meaning no medical um, attendance. Um, we work in homes, birth centers. And then a midwife is actually a medically trained professional who offers prenatal care, who can actually diagnose and treat certain conditions throughout the pregnancy, um, depending on the risk factor. And they're there for the birth, uh, monitoring the baby, monitoring the mother. Um, they don't offer any, you know, pain drugs or, or C-section surgeries, things like that. And then they offer um, postpartum care. And then an OB, um, OB-GYN, which most people are familiar with, um, is a medical doctor who is supposed to really be focusing on high-risk 
pregnancy in some cases. Um, you know, they offer C-sections, surgeries, anesthesia. Um, they don't really offer postpartum care. You can kind of go in one or six week mark and check in with them, but um, that's really not their wheelhouse. So they're really just there up until the birth. There's kind of like this void um, in the conventional uh, world for postpartum care. It's like after you have the baby, it's you're kind of like in this nether region where if you needed assistance and support, like you, you can't really find it. Um, so midwives tend to fill in that void and offer that support, yeah. support postpartum. Um, and then there are, you know, other types of birth workers or, you know, people who hold space and call themselves a birth keeper, or, you know, they're kind of creating their own niche or definition of what it is to, to create support for women. But those are the basics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in old school Denmark and even going, you know, back in past ages, uh, it was just uh, a process between, uh, the women that, uh, helped whatever family member was giving birth. And it wasn't about a medical thing. And, and, and again, the analytics in, in Denmark at one time were that, you know, there's fewer complications and everything. So, right. so perhaps the more we intervene, the more we set up for complications of uh, yeah. interfering with, with the body and what women already know how to do. So what you do to me in comparison, seems like the most important part of a birthing process, because just with my own kids, and, you know, other births that I've been in on, you know, the, you know, the person giving birth really needs that emotional support more than anything. I mean, that's, that's what makes or breaks a whole deal. So it's always been curious to me why they can't just sort of integrate that understanding into, uh, you know, with medical practitioners of all types. Yeah, I mean, that's just not their wheelhouse, right? To to create a container for a woman to surrender. Like, what does that mean to someone who's there to diagnose and treat? Like, it, it doesn't, there is no overlap there. Um, and yeah, you're right. The more that you intervene, the more, you know, it's like, I call the IV, you know, the, the saline solution that they offer at the hospital. I call that the gateway drug <laughs> in birth, because that's really the first step, right? That's just seeing that in your arm energetically, psycho-spiritually, you are now in this energy field of patient and illness um, and pathology. And then from there, it's really easy to access the woman with anything. Um, you know, and it slows down contractions, it interferes with the birthing process and a perfectly healthy woman with a perfectly healthy baby is suddenly getting wheeled into the OR for a C-section. And I'm like, you know, I trace it back to the IV. I trace it back to, I mean, there's so many other factors, but it's really that, you know, it's just this cascade effect of interventions. And, and it's interesting in the same way, what we've seen with the whole, um, kind of germ theory history of modern medicine and allopathy that there's this narrative that back in the day the natural processes were inherently flawed because nature is inherently flawed and we are now have the marvels of modern science to make everything better and they look at these statistics right like in the turn of the 20th century from the late 1800s and 1900s how there was um so many stillborn and and um, mothers who died giving birth they don't factor in what you were just saying which is already vaccines were heavily prevalent in in uh, society and also the course the industrial revolution uh, revolution there people living in filth in cities yeah. um and the so food. the food right um people literally eating just um grease grease burgers because they were so poor um and so lack of nutrition 
uh, lack of um, all these basic fundamental things you would have in a traditional, say, tribal setting, right, or an indigenous setting. So curious how you can relate that to your kind of ideas behind natural birthing and um, what you see as really the truth here in terms of really what is the natural way that humans are supposed to give birth and um, how are how do we get to where we are now in terms of this idea that moderns uh, that you need to go into an OB, you know, go to a hospital to have a birth or, or otherwise you're putting yourself at danger, which is what most women are, are told these days. Yeah. So, okay. Like, I guess maybe in the 1880s was really when the doctor in town, you know, this kind of middle-class white male, um, let's look at England, for example, was coming around and doing house calls. And to have that kind of like, you know, this new type of care was something that the upper class really wanted. And to have this person come and visit and to have with this kind of new training that wasn't a woman that wasn't passed down from traditions, it was coming from this science, right? It was coming from this new place that people were curious about. And so then it was heavily associated, having this medical doctor, it was heavily associated with status. And eventually, you know, ACOG was formed, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which was just a bunch of men, you know, self-appointed, it was a self-appointed organization, you know, a group of men that were like, we're going to set the standards and we're going to make sure that care is a certain way and we're going to let people know uh, what's what. Um, And so it was just co-opted, you know, it was like, it came down through these traditions of women birthing together, um, learning how to work with high-risk situations, offering support um, and remedies. And then it was just, it was like this quick, I don't know, like hijacking that happened within maybe 30 years. Um, You know, and a lot of these public hospitals opened in New York, people were coming over from Europe and they started doing C-sections. You know, they had done C-sections previously, but the outcome for the mother wasn't good. It was just really to save the baby. But now they were finding ways to really like, medicate the mother, uh, you know, knock her out, drag the baby out, right? Knock them out, drag them out, era of birth. And so they were finding ways to control the process and um, bypass the labor, which is like this this work that (laughs) nobody wants to do. And then on top of it, they could charge a lot of money, right? They could charge a lot of money to get women um, through this. So I would say that we lost it, like you'd mentioned at the turn of the century. And we started feeding the public this idea that hospital birth was safer because look at how many women are dying at home. Look at how many babies are suffering at home. It's the, it's the lack of technology. It's the lack of science. It's the lack of the facility. And we have the facility. So it was being marketed as this like five-star hotel where you could come and have this like pain-free birth. And then someone would take care of your baby for you for the days after. And what's, so sad really is just that the outcomes have not really changed for women like and and babies the fetal mortality rate is still quite high and same with maternal mortality rate in 2021 um and so yeah it's just i'd say that the normal physiological way that we're supposed to be birthing is educating ourselves which we which we, we don't do anymore right 
we, we say, okay, like this is a business. I'm not going to take classes. Why do I need to do this? It's the body's natural function. I'm just going to show up and these birth attendants are going to tell me what to do. Unfortunately, we've lost the tradition. You know, we don't know what our grandmother did. We don't know what our aunts did. Like we're not passing down any information anymore. So it's essential to educate yourself and for your partner to educate himself or herself. And we're not doing that. So what we need to do is that education component and also eat a diet and, and uh, nourish ourselves in a way that's actually supportive of fetal development, which is one of the biggest issues we're having now is that women are super malnourished, right? I get a lot of plant-based clients who have gestational diabetes <laughs> because they're malnourished. And, you know, it's, this is not going to turn into a conversation about plant-based diets, <laughs> but What's happening is that they're mineral deficient and they're deficient in a variety of vitamins. And so then they're supplementing with over-the-counter, you know, natural supplements, which are garbage. Um, and then they're ending up in these medicated situations at hospitals. And they're like, you know, I was so healthy. I don't understand. So there's a disconnect with our food, which is the other component. Um, so I'd say lack of education and nourishment is really what's going on. Like I could say, I want to blame the medical industrial complex for birth going in the direction that it's going, but it's really just a lack of commitment and ignorance because anyone can emancipate themselves from that system just by simply educating themselves and nourishing themselves in a different way. Yeah, my observation is that women that kind of, um, you know, succumb to just take care of me and you do the birth for me, they miss a real important maternal developmental step. Yes. Yeah. And in my experience, uh, you know, the women that, you know, participate and take responsibility uh, just end up being, it seems like better hands-on moms. And, uh, you know, in my practice years, I get a lot fewer phone calls. They, they just, you know, from those folks, they just tended to be more self-sufficient and didn't go into fear at the slightest little sniffle or something. Whereas the, you know, the moms that did it otherwise, it's just, um, you know, I umpteen calls all the time and I just say, yeah, you know, it's just normal kids do that. And, but they freak out at everything. You know um, one other thing that just kind of just always struck me odd is when I was choosing my area of specialty, you know, when I was going into healthcare um, you know, I, I entertain a lot of options and I always thought, it's kind of weird that a guy would want to choose OB-GYN when, you know, you're not even in a female spacesuit in the first place. So, right. you know, it's yeah. going to be definitely a little bit harder to relate to. And um, anyway, it's I just interesting that, that uh, career choice. <laughs> interesting that Bill Cosby was one on the Cosby show. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Whoa. Pretty creepy. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that is a really good point. And so when, oh man, there's so much there. Yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> there's so much there. Um, yeah, I don't personally think that men should be working in this field, you know. Um, Another great example of, uh, you know, kind of, and again, I'm not trying to go full on feminist here or anything, but it's just, you know, it seems intuitive to me. You have these um, procedures like hysterectomy, and I'm always telling people, pick the word apart. What's it mean? It means you take the hysteria out. And at one time, the, right. you know, male predominated mm -hmm. medical doctors uh, way back um, were having a hard time dealing with the emotional aspect of women so hey yeah. what the heck let's just neuter them and and they they're a lot more docile what could be wrong with that 
And so to this day, I have women saying, hey, uh, I was recommended to have a hysterectomy, you know, and it's like, okay, or preemptive hysterectomy, because I had a, a history of, you know, my grandmother had ovarian cancer. So let's rip everything out. And I mean, it's just freaking crazy. Right. And isn't birth control really the same thing just prolonged over time, you know? Yeah. Control her hysteria with synthetic hormones. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And with women uh, that, you know, would come to me as adults with issues, we'd always trace it back to, okay, we want birth control and and so forth. And, you know, that's when their hormones just started getting really whacked out way back at, you know, in that time. And then it follows them throughout life. And then they wonder why they're having such a horrible menopause. Right. And like you said, these women calling you like, what do I do? I'm not sure. It's, it's this undermining of their femininity that happens from birth, right? It's happening to their mother at their birth. And so they're taking that on as they're coming in through the birth canal. It's just this undermining of her femininity, of her power. And then she goes through life being basically referred out, right? Oh, you're not feeling well. I'm referring you out to this doctor. He's going to take care of you. She's going to take care of you. Oh, I'm unable to support you in your developmental learning and all these phases. I'm going to source you out to this program that works with children. It's like, you're always being sourced out and you're never actually given the opportunity to say, I like this. I don't like this. This works for me. This doesn't work for me. And then that just continues to bleed in through our entire school system, uh, the way that we enter into relationship, and then we reach our own birth again, we're now pregnant, and we're just sourcing out, we're sourcing out constantly, and being undermined. So it's no, it's no wonder that they would call you wondering, you know, what, what should I do? Yeah, no one's no one's ever asked them what they want to do. And they didn't even know that they could just, you know, exit stage left, and suddenly they're, they're free, right? It's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's wild. And we talk a lot about how the, there's a, been a loss of this rite of passage <clears throat> amongst men and, of course, amongst women. And, of course, it seems like to me a, a massive rite of passage would be the birthing labor process, right? Yeah. Going through the labor of, of bringing life into the, into the realm and to have it where the C-section salon now you go into um, that was introduced um seems like a very obvious um, delineation from that rite of passage. Um, and then that, of course, takes you away from everything you're saying and the idea of sovereignty, of, of, of taking on these things as a developing soul. And that's why we're here instead of sourcing it out. Um, so is that kind of stuff that you do in, as, a, you know, as an instructor, as a um, birthing coach, as you, you get into the beauty of labor? So for uh, give a little backstory on my two births with my wife, we did a mindfulness course in San Francisco when we lived there for our first uh, child. And it was wonderful because we, we, the whole point of mindfulness is that you go into the pain, you go, mm-hmm. you embrace it, and you enjoy the experience, mm-hmm. which sounds mm-hmm. bizarre to people who might think, wow, that is pain. And so my wife did no drug, totally natural. We did have a doula and we did do it in a birthing center um, because we were in a very small apartment and just didn't have the facility there at home. But having the doula who uh, was there as a support was massive, but the mindfulness was big for me too, because we did our, you know, the traditional kind of breath stuff, but the mindfulness was huge. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a a very important aspect of um, 
of the kind of uh, growth of becoming a true adult, right? Yeah. So anyways, I'd love yeah. to hear your, your ideas on that. Yeah. So, well, as an educator, so in my classes, what I talk about, I mean, the, the, the underpinning is really that the pain has a purpose in this whole process, right? And so if we understand that in the pelvic region, there are nerves that are set off every time we have a contraction and then a signal is sent to the brain to release more of a certain hormone that's going to keep the momentum of labor going, we understand that there is a very important purpose to feeling these sensations. And that is practical and accessible for men or the masculine in this, in this dynamic. Right. And for women, it goes more and they can go more into this space of saying, Oh, I have to do this. This is a labor of love because this is what's going to get my baby out. So it, it is that mindfulness and it is that understanding. Um, so we focus a lot on that and, you know, it's not, I tell people it's not about a right or wrong way to birth. It's really about the way that you want to birth. And if you're tapping in, you usually want what's going to be the most independent, autonomous, sovereign experience once you really start peeling back the layers. And so I get a lot of people who come to me and say, well, you know, I really am interested in this. I don't know what natural birth means. I don't really have a lot of buy-in for my husband, but he supports me. So he's here. And then it really becomes about him opening up to the possibility that if he doesn't step up, the whole experience is going to get co-opted by some strange male that, you know, they hardly know in a hospital. <laughs> and he doesn't really like that. Ultimately, he doesn't really want that for his family. And so it's, it's about the masculine and the feminine in this dynamic reclaiming their role. And, um, and then ultimately a container is created. And that looks so different for everyone. Um, but yeah, in the classes, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of practical application, right? You can be your own, your, your partner can be your doula, you know, you don't really need an outsider to come in and, and do any of this. It, it can be helpful and it's luxurious, of course. Um, but partners can really step into this experience and um, on a physical and spiritual level. And with that knowing and that mindfulness that this all has a purpose and this is all supposed to unfold this way. Um, that's what really can carry them through. Yeah, I, I um, did a lot of prenatal care in my past. And one of the things with every single visit, um, we would establish a communication between the mom and the baby. Mm -hmm. And I would interpret yes. it, I had neurological techniques where we would actually have dialogues and uh, allow the incoming soul, of course, uh, you know, who is uh, a very aware consciousness, especially yeah. before they're in embodiment. And it was amazing the type of uh, information and just dialogues between mom and the, the incoming that would happen. And what was really cool about that is not only did we get practical information where we could, um, you know, do emotional clearings and, and mm -hmm. you know, or provide certain substances that, you know, the embryo actually needed, you know, for development, but it... Uh, really, you know, impressed upon everybody's mind, the parents that, wow, this is a real incoming conscious life form that uh, has chosen you. And, uh, you know, it's not just a coincidence, you know, you have an agreement behind the veil, you know, to, to play these roles for each other. And why don't you just get to know each other now and, right. you know, hit the ground running after the birth. So it was a, always an amazing experience. And it just helped the birth tremendously in my experience. 
Yeah. So that's so beautiful that you, that you're sharing that when I practice Reiki on my clients, it's so funny. Cause when I get to the area where the baby is, they're so, their energy is so clear and so strong and it's kind of like high acknowledgement. And then they're like, okay, move on. Right. They're, they don't really like linger. They don't want to linger too much in communication with me. They're just like, they're so aware And the things that they'll say that will come up that the woman will hear in that process from the baby really does connect her. And she'll say, why would I want to medicate myself? Why would I want to be in an environment that would actually separate me at all from this being? And that is, that can be another step in the process of them really embodying this entire experience. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of having that more intense psychic uh, connection with your baby. Cause obviously you have the physiological, right. but, uh, having that, that communicate, developing that communication to really inherently know, um, what's best for the mother and the child. Uh, that's, that needs to be developed more, I think. And yeah. do, so do you do a lot of that kind of work? Because I think that's extremely powerful. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes it happens in Reiki and sometimes it can happen one-on-one where I'll just ask them to close their eyes and we'll breathe and whatever they're picking up or hearing, they'll write it down, you know? And so there is this whole exercise about just trusting what you're hearing because a lot of women have not been given that opportunity, right? There's so much that goes against listening to our intuition and basically gaslighting ourselves constantly. So there is this process of what's the first thing you heard, write it down. Right. And then they'll just start free writing and you'll see this conversation kind of unfold on paper. And it's really beautiful for them because then they can tap back into that on their own whenever they want. So what I like to offer are just tools for women to be completely self-empowered, you know, not feeling like they need to call me to be able to access anything, not feeling like they need to text their doctor, or their midwife to access anything. It's just tools that they can put in their kit and continue um, for as long as they want, you know, and developing yeah. them on their own. Yes, that is, that is so cool. And I think that's, uh, you hit the nail on the head, develop them, developing them on their own right? Being able to play with this and have fun and engage with yeah. this consciousness that what I tell my kids, it's like, cause I truly believe we've been incarnated in all different kinds of familiar in, uh, forms. In, in other words, maybe my youngest son was my father at one point, you know, yeah. you can get really into these, into these ideas that we've been together on multiple timelines and multiple reincarnations. And um, it's all meant to be. So knowing mm-hmm. that, and knowing we ha- you have a plan coming in, um, really, I think, re- resolves a lot of the anxieties, right? We have about, oh, you know, we're getting some really great questions in the chat here, by the way, in terms of the physical nature of birth, um, in terms of if I've had it, and I'd love to hear your, your response on this. If they've had a C-section before, supposedly you can't do a natural birth again. Um, what is your opinion on that? But but the, my point is the focus on the physical can kind of be, taken away once we understand that there's a much bigger design Mm -hmm. at play oh yeah oh yeah absolutely absolutely um but you got to titrate into that right and so as much as that is true and as much as that is very real i believe to be real um there are I'm, i'm meeting people where they are and titrating in is what's important and some people can't get there in their first experience perhaps in their second pregnancy 
So yeah, that's the process. Everyone's in, in their unique process. Um, so as far as C-sections, uh, okay, vaginal birth after cesarean is, uh, is called a VBAC, and it is most certainly possible. Uh, you typically want to wait a year or so before doing a vaginal birth or becoming pregnant after a cesarean just to make sure that the uterus has had time to heal and restructure. Um, the reason that in the past it was not recommended to go into labor again was because women had these vertical um, incisions and scars on the uterus. And so if you imagine this muscle contracting, that scar would open and that would compromise the baby. Uh, that wound site would open again and compromise the baby during the second labor. Um, so now the C-sections are being done differently. It's a lower incision. It's horizontal, uh, just much more artfully done if you want to look at it that way. And so it's very possible for women to do yeah. a, uh, a vaginal birth after C-section. It's just a lot of, you know, like in, in the medical industrial complex, it takes like 40 years for something that's been like <laughs> maybe yeah. like new or developed to even reach anyone. Um, apart from all of the red tape that you have to go through and all of the, the threats that, that change would bring to their system, it takes a really long time for new ideas to come through. And so, you know, there's, a, there's an OB out there that can help you. And there are certainly midwives if they're not in a heavily regulated state that can help you have a vaginal birth after cesarean. You know, uh, another important thing about scars, Mike, is my mic different now? Yeah, sorry about that for those listening to the podcast. That was my bad. I didn't catch that Bear's mic wasn't on. He was using his uh, computer audio. So yeah, sounds better now. Sorry, we, we okay. need to hear your beautiful voice in its crystalline form. Thank you. Why, thank you for saying that, Michael. So, <laughs> so with scars, that's an important thing. And I would treat scars all the time, um, especially with C-sections. And we did something called neurotherapy, uh, you know, injecting the scars uh, with procaine and other, uh, you know, substances in order to open up that tissue so it could transmit information because the connective tissue, of course, is what you know, the meridians and everybody else traverses through in order to carry their informational field. So that scar can interfere with that. So we would take great lengths to open that up to make sure that was an impediment to, you know, uh, the woman's health from that point on. The other thing, which we've also talked about on this show, is uh, something called a birth scar, which I know you're very aware of. And uh, we would do the same thing around the umbilicus. And especially mm -hmm. in hospital births, we found that that birth scar was more prominent and mm -hmm. actually had a, a, a pretty high emotional content at the same time that we would yeah. have to deal with. So um, anything you, you could say about that? Um, yeah, there is so much stored there. Um, mm -hmm. When I, you know, in my, within my scope, practicing Reiki on women who've had C-sections and spending a lot of time in that area, the emotional purging that happens um, when we spend time there is really quite amazing. And things that things will come up from their own birth, being a C-section baby themselves. Um, so that's carried through, right? That's carried through from their experience being born in the 80s by C-section and then now having their child by C-section when we work on that area. Um, it becomes interdimensional. And um, 
And I think that there's a lot of benefit to not only like the physical application that you're discussing, but really going into this rebirthing process of returning to your own birth and using this, you know, potentially traumatic experience of your C-section to go back to how you came in. Uh, it's a design. None of it is accidental. None of it is coincidence. I don't believe in that. It's, it was all there for you to be exposed to something. Um, and, and I, I know it's hard to lean into that. I know it's, it's painful, but, um, but it's there to teach you. And, um, so do you ever encounter anybody that has, uh, uh, just a self recall of their own birth, just remembering actually going through it? Yeah, I have, um, quite a few people actually, and their body temperature will change and they'll feel really cold. And um, they might be feeling difficulty breathing, like they're clearing their lungs. Um, they might, you know, which is what we do at birth. Um, they might have flashes of certain pictures of seeing their father's face um, being held. So actually feeling cold touch on their body, um, beeping. They might hear beeping sounds, rhythmic beeping sounds. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's very rarely, is it like a full picture of specifics, but there are flashes that come up and then this kind of somatic, you know, sometimes movement will happen. Um, I had someone recall their circumcision, which was so interesting, um, seeing their father's face, <laughs> um, while it was happening and remembering, um, the tears in their father's eyes, looking on, looking on at them through this glass you know, and then later he talked to his father about it. And his father was like, how did you know that? How did you know that I was crying? How did you know that I was standing there on the yeah. other side of the glass? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I asked that and I don't want to be personal, but I had, um, I came in for whatever reason with a full memory and actually used to freak my mom out when I was a little kid, because I, to this day, I remember every detail of the, the room, the color, the people in there, yeah, uh, including Whoa before being in the body and then entering and what it felt like being disembodied before getting into a body. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why that was. And I remember my entire infancy too. And I used to talk about that with my mom and she, you know, kind of collaborated that. Yeah. So um, wow, to me though, the, the reason why I bring it out uh, up is it became very helpful for me later on, I believe with some of the work I was involved with, because it just that memory, uh, made a great impress on me as far as uh, maybe just understanding on more of the, I don't know, more on the feeling level as far as what an incoming soul is going through. And to me, it was a very positive thing. It wasn't one of these things where people describe, oh, it's horrible. I'm in this body and everything. I just remember this free floating consciousness and how wonderful and free yeah. it felt. And then yeah. entering in, you know, it wasn't like an unpleasant thing. Uh, as far as my memory, but anyway, I just throw that out there. Yeah. And this, and this action, you know, this process of returning to your birth mm -hmm. while you're pregnant is so powerful because it can build this infinite well of compassion within the woman mm -hmm. to want mm -hmm. to create a different experience for her child or a similar mm -hmm. experience if it was great, you know, positive. Right. Um, so this exercise is can be so beautiful and can be part of what creates the buy in and the desire mm -hmm. to become autonomous in the process. Wow. Um, do you know if uh, are you familiar with the rebirthing breath technique? I am. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I have a, a friend in Germany who does it. 
I'm going to do it with him soon. I haven't done it myself. Oh, it's, it's, we had uh, Eric Cassano on uh, about a month ago, um, who's a friend of ours, who is a very um, accomplished practitioner in that. And uh, he talks about doing that in a bath, doing it Mm -hmm. safely in water. And that Mm -hmm. really mimics the, that process in a way that's really fundamental. And I'm just curious if you would recommend that for pregnant women, or is that, you know, in terms of maybe that's a really good way to, to really tap into those, those feelings and emotions from the birthing process that they initially went to as another extension of what we're talking about. Yeah, I would absolutely recommend it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you advise? Go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, this is really deep, holistic healing, right? For the planet, all of this. Mm-hmm. understanding where we came from and how we came into the realm and how we came onto this planet. Like this is important, important stuff. And um, I'm just so happy that this is getting out there now. And people are really talking about this a lot. It's coming up. We had Owen Benjamin on recently, and I actually uh, referred him to you because they're looking to have, uh, he brought it up on the show. So looking to have uh, uh, another child and want to do it as naturally as possible, because I believe that was one of their worries was the C-section thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, so, and, you know, to have very masculine type men who are now really open to this, you know, and really open to embracing th- their partners in the most powerful way. That's the divine masculine, right? That's the Christ consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Polar. I mean, this is like one of the most divine polarizations that can happen is creating that container for her to go into full surrender to dance in the feminine and that surrender is really where the labor happens so smoothly you know i I see women all the time you know more so before I, i i consciously don't work in hospitals anymore as of march but it was the case where the woman was managing the labor communicating with the nurses and also taking care of her husband who was having his own experience and feeling so uncomfortable and scared and couldn't look at fluids. So the woman was embodying masculine, feminine. And of course, it's like a, cra- it's like a crash and burn for the birth. Um, and so this is, it's, it's essential. It's essential. And I think that any man who is in that high frequency masculine, who is embodying that, this makes complete sense to him. There's no way that it can yeah. And don't you think that if somebody is birthed consciously, that then they're going to have more of a chance of making their exit strategy conscious as well? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting too. You leave through the tunnel, right? Of light and you come in through the tunnel of light. Mm Yeah. Yeah fascinating and and also it's uh it it takes away you you know my little personal memory it it takes away that whole anxiety about leaving the planet and understanding that you know you're much more than this this spacesuit so yeah um you know and i think it also helps you live uh consciously you know throughout your entire life stream because you're not engaged so much in the in the lower form anxieties and things, and you can just get about the the practice of living a lot more successfully. Yeah, a daily, an awareness practice throughout life, I feel like is just 
you can lay that foundation at your birth. Like if this has not been mm-hmm. your practice, this has not been the way that you've lived, this is a beautiful opportunity to have this rebirth, right? I mean, I always tell women, get ready for your death and your rebirth because it's coming when this baby's born. And they're, you know, some people are like that, you know, don't use that word, but it's, it's what it is. And this is such an opportunity to then move forward and live in awareness and in presence in every moment, right? And that's like complete freedom. That's complete liberty. That's an old uh, Don Juan Carlos Castaneda uh, sort of teaching is um, Don Juan taught Carlos to always wear death on the left shoulder, just always be aware of it. And that was be the only way that he could lead an impeccable life and not just, you know, uh, yeah, just wasted away. Yeah. <laughs> Have so, you uh, delved into Don Juan, Mike? Yes, I, that was one of my um, kind of borders books reading when I was uh, taking my lunch breaks in my uh, what, 19, 20, when I discovered uh, Ike and all these. I wasn't fortunate enough to have uh, parents giving those books to me when I was 14, Ayla, but um, my, fa- <laughs> my father was like, he was like a total um, you know, constitutionalists and freedom guys. So I was fortunate that grew up with him. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I started getting into those books there and I would, like, I've told the story before I would, cause I was too, uh, broke to buy them. I would hide them in different sections of the borders bookstore. And then I'd find them and I had my bookmarks in them and read them on my lunch breaks from work. <clears throat> but, um, personal library. Yeah. Right. I know. I, I feel so bad that kids these days don't have those, you know, in the cities and stuff, they don't have those big bookstores anymore. You know, those were like, there's a few Barnes and Nobles in the, in, in the United States, but I remember going to these like three, four stories, borders, bookstores, you know, and it was just like so fun in there. I used to do that on a Friday night, like with my friends in middle and high school is like hang out at borders and read and listen to music and go to the CD stations. And I remember bookstores. That was awesome. Such a loss uh, when those went (laughs) away. I remember being uh, chased by bullies in a mall uh mexican gangsters when i was a kid and i knew to run into the bookstore because they wouldn't know to go in there right kind of a funny story um but that's always where my go to the mall and my my go mom i'm going to the bookstore she'd go do shopping and i'd run into the bookstore and i'd just be in there and it was my little sanctuary and now kids are on devices on tiktok which i refuse to let my kid um be on um but yeah um have you been just just a curious, Ayla, because I know you're in some groups with us. Have you been following this whole astral world uh, uh, insanity with the event that happened last weekend and that portal and everything on the stage? Oh it's kind of yeah. like a weird birth canal there kind of portal thing. And they see, see you on the other side. Yeah. Really bizarre, bizarre mm-hmm. stuff happening in the mainstream. Totally. And it's just amazing how it's, you know, like it always happens that they're taught, you know, people have sent me screenshots of it being like, this was all planned. It was staged. It was supposed to look like a massive suicide. It was supposed to look like a mask, you know, uh, uh, traverse through the portal. And people are like, oh yeah, it was, it was staged, you know? So it's like this adapting of and normalizing of this mass sacrifice. (laughs) And people are like, yeah, totally. You know? So that was like the weirdest part to me is that um, they just found a way to market it so that it was, it looked planned and it was supposed to be that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the mainstream. Now it's just fascinating to me how out of touch culture is, I'm out of 
from mainstream culture now. I just, I, it seems so dark now. And I, I, uh, I feel like um, pop culture has become such a corporatized joke of itself. I don't know in the history of the known history of mankind that it's ever been this wretched. Um, and um, why this topic today is so important, right? Is like reconnecting of who we are, where we come from and why we're here. Um, and for the most part, it seems like the mass populace is more than ever out of touch with that in a way that's extremely frightening. Um, so yeah, having mothers somehow have a wake up call as they're getting pregnant and finding a way to get in touch with who they are, uh, through their body, um, is I think a huge solution. So yeah. you're doing great work there. Yeah. And you know, most of the women that come to me have had previously, um, traumatic experiences with a first birth and they'll talk to me about their process of how they were preparing the first time around. And so many times what they were doing was they were just part of a pregnant mom's Facebook group. And that's how they were learning to connect with the experience and tapping in and natural moms, natural birth groups, things like that, which, you know, I, I would, I would go in when I had Facebook and kind of just see what was going on. And it was just so wretched and scary and really like the blind leading the blind. And it's like one person would get a bit, bit of information from someone and then it would like infiltrate into the group and then, you know, so disconnected. And so, yeah, women, women, you know, after that experience, they either choose to stay in the narrative and accept that that's how birth is, or they kind of turn a little in one direction and say, oh, this could be different. I'm not sure how it's going to be different. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to walk this path and see what I find, you know? Yeah. Um, question oh. real quick, Bear. Um, this is kind of a, a, it came up in the chat and we talked about with Eric Cassano. Are you familiar with the dolphin birthing, having dolphins? Yes. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that interesting concept? Um, the little that I know about it, um, I'd actually like to try it myself personally one day, but the little that I know about it is just because of how dolphins function with sound that they can completely tap into what the baby's doing, like the baby's heart tones, the rhythm of the contractions. And so they can get near or far depending on what the woman's doing. So when she gets a contraction, the dolphin will actually come in closer and move around her, um, and then when the contraction's over, they'll, they'll kind of go swim away and then they'll come back immediately. So they know when a contraction is starting, right? And hospitals need devices and technology to even know that. <laughs> so this dolphin is completely, dolphins are completely tapped in. And I think that if someone feels safe in water, uh, which, you know, maybe some people don't, um, this would be a beautiful thing to try out if you have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, just the water birth alone is spectacular. Uh, you know, our latest grandchild came in that way. And he's, you know, of course, I'm a biased grandpa, but um, just remarkable in every way as far as how developed he is at his age. Don't you agree, yeah. Michael? Yes, he's a little, he's a little <laughs> badass. And, and, and my kids, uh, too, it's interesting. Um, and there's something to be, I know there's actual like, science behind this too, with the natural birth of the process of coming through without the drugs and stuff and that uh, for the development of the child right out of the gate, right? Um, and the connection with the parents there. Um, and also like immediately going skin to skin. I went skin to skin with the, with my both my newborns immediately. 
um, and had that direct connection. Uh, and just, we tried to stay, we walked. So after, um, we had it in the birthing center, but we walked home and we were in San Francisco the next day, got out of the hospital. They were like, where are you going? And we're like, we're walking home. They're like, you can't do that. Oh, we're out kind of thing. And then we were already walking around the city two or three days later with our newborn. And there was like old Asian ladies freaking out like that needs that baby needs to be at home for one month at least kind of thing. So there's something to be said about being brave and just trusting in nature and yourselves. Right. And in your ability to um, for, we're like we're meant to be on this end at this place outside. Like it's just wild yeah. to me. Like, you the know, the thing there, though, is that we're meant to walk right after birth we're meant to go outside we're meant to you know carry on and a lot of people don't leave for weeks because they're worried because they're in a germ theory framework that's really why they don't leave and they think this baby is like the most you know fragile faberge egg and they can't even move it and no one can hold it the reason that i encourage women to stay home and nourish themselves is because i know that the alternative is them trying to go back to work so, so I do encourage them to, you know, do lotus birth where they leave the placenta attached to the baby. And that actually encourages them to stay home and just eat, hang out and breastfeed. Right. But if you have the awareness that you and your wife did, where it's like, no, we're, we're out because we want to be out. And because we trust this process, it's not because we're out going back to meetings, doing Pilates class, like, you know what I mean? Which is what I contend with a lot is just, mm-hmm. you know, I tell them and just, yeah, go on walks where the baby go home, breastfeed, sleep, eat. That's all you have to do, you know, but there's this idea that like, can't be outside. And if I go outside, I need to be productive. And being productive does not involve nurturing my child. It involves answering all the emails, doing all the things, having family over, hosting, you know, so there is, there is a fine line there. Um, But yeah, we're supposed to be out. We're supposed to be interacting with the world and nature and bacteria. So um, I have a, Go ahead, Michael. Oh, no, I was just saying, yes, I, I couldn't agree more that germ theory once again comes into play there. Like, and that was what our th- idea was back then. And I, I was awake to all this thanks to bear, but I was like, I want my kid to be exposed to as much as possible right out of the gate. So he's strong. Yeah. Right. Um, you, you think of like the secret garden or whatever, was that the book where the weak kids sick in the sickly in the, in the, in the closed up room with the shutters closed. And then what happens? They open yeah. up the shutters to let the sun come in. They let him out in the garden and he heals. Right. Right. Yeah. So what I was going to, what I was going to ask is that, you know, when we had our kids, they just slept with us actually for a long time. And it was very easy that way, you know, if they needed to nurse, it wasn't the getting up and going somewhere else. And, you know, I get a lot of women just, you know, this obliterated from lack of sleep and, and, you know, they don't do that. And there's different theories about, you know, well, should the kid have their own space and everything, but it just seemed a natural thing to us just to have them in bed. And, uh, you know, the first one, I was a little freaked out at first, because of course, I was worried I was going to roll over on him or something. But, uh, you know, then you just get to, you know, learn how to navigate that in your sleep and you don't worry about it anymore. But it, it was really the easiest time, uh, you know, and we, uh, it seemed like a natural process to do that, but there's different theories as far as, uh, you know, should you sleep with your kids and how long and everything. So any thoughts? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you should definitely sleep with your kids. You know, I, this idea of a crib or having your child in another room, especially those first two years is, I mean, that sounds extreme to me. Um, you know, yeah. I think we, we used to all sleep. I mean, look at the Inuit. It's like they have one large fur and there's like eight of them all sleeping under the fur. <laughs> I mean, the baby's faces are actually covered, <laughs> you know, no one's suffocating. So they adapt and they learn. And so the baby's breathing actually develops um, with the mother's breathing. And so she, they become very much in tune at night. And the idea is that the baby is right next to the mother's chest and the baby can actually actively reach for the breast on its own without even waking her up. At two weeks old, the baby can actually find the breast through smell and sound and breastfeed and latch without the mother having to get up, do anything, sit in a rocking chair, you know, the whole song and dance that we think we're supposed to do. Um, so when women really surrender to that and trust that process, they do get more sleep. And I speak from personal experience. I mean, my daughter slept with us until she was like four. And then now she randomly will sleep in my bed, you know, if she feels like it and we want to do something, you know what I mean? But it's like, I, I, I breastfed her until she was five and I, you know, there were times that I was tired. Sure. But I was like keeping a house, raising a child, working with clients. I was tired for those reasons, not because I was breastfeeding and co-sleeping. Um, you know, and a lot of the clients that I work with, they're like, I'm not getting any sleep. I have a night nurse. The baby's down the hall. The baby cries. I still wake up. I hear the baby. I'm like, you're still waking up because you are hardwired to feed and nourish and care for your child. So you could hear a pin drop down the hall and you would wake up. So why don't you just fire the night nurse and do this? Because it is a rite of passage. And this is another opportunity that the entire system has to undermine her maternal power and identity, right? And disable her. So co-sleeping is very important. I, I encourage everyone to do it. Unless of course someone thank is you taking for, pills at night for sleep, then that's yeah. a different story. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for mentioning the component of just the family being able to sync up their biorhythms together. And that does so much for the life of that family, you know, when you're just in sync from day one like that. And of course, what's in vogue today is you not only have the kid in the separate space, but you have an electronic surveillance, you know, with a camera and everything. I know so many parents that do that. It's like, wow, really? Uh, but uh, and and hired and hired help to sleep in the room mm -hmm. with the baby, plus the electronic mm -hmm. monitoring you know, and I tell people those first few weeks, you're going to, you're going to learn how to communicate with your baby. You're going to really get to know them. And there is the father's not supposed to participate in feeding. There are no bottles. Like there is no one else plays a role in breastfeeding or feeding your child at night or during the day besides you. And that's just a really difficult thing to go against because everything is marketed towards convenience and towards convincing the woman that breastfeeding is really next to impossible it's going to change her life and look at all these things that we have that you can spend money on to make it so much easier for you. Yeah, well, you well, that's a crazy industry in itself. The baby and uh, birthing industry. We went to a couple of those, like, you know, those big, um, where, uh, what are they called? You know, where you go and all the companies Expo. are there expos. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, my youngest was a model for, um, uh, a wrap was actually just a really organic, cool, natural wrap. 
I forgot it was the company and he was, he was the model for them. They loved him nice. so much, but, but yeah, there's some good stuff, of course, like, you know, like the wraps and things that help you stay close to your kid and are designed well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and we actually, we co-slept as well, but we did have a little um, co-sleeper that attached to the bed sometimes mm-hmm. where we could just ship Those are great. the baby over so that um, we could have a little more space sometimes, but yeah, I loved it. Um, we had, um, we still have, well, our youngest now is kind of over it, but he would, he slept in our bed till about six, maybe five. And, um, I miss it now, you know, they grow up so fast. So it's like, enjoy it, right. Enjoy being with your little cuddly bears. And And that's part of the attachment parenting style, right. Is creating that secure attachment so that your child does become an independent autonomous being who can make their own decisions based on how they feel and what's happening in their body in that, in that moment, you know? Um, but we rob them of the opportunity to really tap into that when we're just directing them so much through all of these funnels and systems. Well, and, and they, they sell convenience, but in the end, the long game, it's going to make your life a nightmare as they oh, yeah. become uh, lost and rebellious. And then they look towards TikTok and, uh, and their devices as their mentor, as their parent. And I see that so much with yeah. people, you know, here, uh, any, everywhere, right. Where they're like, I don't know what happened to my kid. And, you know, and it starts at the beginning. Right. So, they're looking yeah. for attachment to source through all of these platforms. And really it could have just happened at birth <laughs> potentially. Yeah. yeah. And, and bear, you bring up a great part about the whole surveillance stuff. That is interesting, right? Because we're entering a the surveillance state as we speak. And then you're introducing that to your own kids for sake of why, right? Um, I see it in our family. I know people that do it very close to me and it's hard. It's a tough subject to bring up. And then of course, on top of that, you have the, uh, the frequencies coming off it. Um, and the, uh, you know, so that's not good for young developing anatomy, right? We got enough of that as is. So it's just, uh, how do you, I mean, what's the best, we had this, you kind of answered it already, Ayla, but how is the best way to approach a mother who is pregnant or um, just had a baby who's a super normie and you're trying to invoke a little bit of wisdom uh, without triggering them? I guess you kind of mm-hmm. said it right in terms of meeting them at their place, but crossing that boundary to help them kind of maybe, because it's hard to see some of mothers doing this. And you know, they, they in, deep, deep down inside, I hope want the best for their baby and their kid and they just don't maybe have the education or the wisdom to understand this what's a like how do you do that in a tender fashion so some of my entry points are questions like um oh do you know how your mother's birth went with you um and sometimes that'll open her up and say well actually my mother had a really beautiful birth and you know this is what i aim to do okay um What's your relationship like with your doctor? And normie meaning, like I'm assuming you mean someone who's going down the conventional route of working with a doctor or an OB. Um, And so those types of questions, oh, do you like your doctor? Yeah, you know, I I do, but sometimes I feel like I can't ask him questions. Oh, okay. So have you found, maybe there's another doctor that you could feel more comfortable with and build better trust with, right? So there's just ways to kind of draw them out to really get get them to that place of recognizing that, it could be different than what they're doing. And usually within that first few minutes, you can access a, a pain point. <laughs> and the pain point in this situation is her not feeling comfortable enough to ask questions. Then you can also ask, oh, have you created a birth plan? Oh yeah, yeah I haven't really thought about that. Someone says that they don't really work. 
oh no, they're so great. I, I used one and it was really helpful because at a time when, you know, they didn't know what to do, they could just look at my birth plan and see what I had chosen. And then that, that gives this woman the sensation of, oh, I have, I have choice and I have power um, on this journey. You know, so there are just little ways to kind of peel up the top layer that can incite some, um, some further research and interest. Um, so yeah, just asking questions about their current experience and then seeing where the pain points are is a way to, to offer support and alternative perspective. Hmm. Yeah. I like so that. What's asking, the climate asking questions. In, oh, sorry. Asking go, questions. go ahead, Bear. What's the climate in hospitals these days? I think I know, but, um, you know, Natural birthing centers and hospitals, I think for a while, were a good step in the right direction, you know, just to kind of get us through this awkward transition. But um, are yeah. they even in those situations just making so many demands on what you have to do and what you have to give the baby and so forth? There's, or, is oh, yeah. it any possibility of um, avoiding any of that if you go into that arena? So if you go into the hospital and you want this unmedicated, um, unadulterated labor and birth, it's really challenging because the energy itself, the field itself is not conducive to surrender. So you have that working against you, unfortunately. But if you insist on doing it this way, you really need support and buy-in from your partner. I mean, they have to want it just as much as you do because they're going to be the primary advocate and they're going to have to feel comfortable establishing dominance in that space, which is really challenging for a lot of people because, you know, because of the godlike quality that doctors hold uh, when, you know, they say, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll sign that AMA. Yeah. I'll say no. And then they get in there and they're like, you know, so there has to be this kind of warrior element that the masculine takes on to be able to go into that space. Because right now, um, you know, I trained with Dr. Bradley, who is an MD um, and he, you know, he's, he's since passed, but he had a birth center attached to a hospital in Los Angeles. And he even felt that being attached to the hospital psychologically and spiritually affected the people arriving to do their birth there. So then he just did a complete standalone birth center in Colorado that had nothing to do with hospitals. So even that in itself, just seeing the hospital, knowing that it's there creates the sense of urgency within people that like, okay, we're anticipating something could go wrong, but thank God we're here. And they kind of get into that field of, of potentials, which I think can be kind of dangerous. Um, so yeah. What, yeah, no, you go ahead, finish. So what's happening Please. right now um, is I, you know, I've been attending births in hospitals for about eight years and it looks the same to me as it did before, <laughs> except now everyone's masked and uh, having to do testing to even get in. Um, what seems to be even stronger and more intense now, and maybe this is because I've changed, um, are the newborn procedures. Uh, really what is, you know, the, the baby being um, immediately whisked away from the mother 
taken to a panda warmer, which is like this little table that keeps the baby warm where they do the exams, they weigh the baby, they inject them with hepatitis B vaccine. Um, they do the vitamin K injection to coagulate the blood. Um, they might even take them and bathe them. Um, they might even circumcise them uh, without having conversation with the parents. And so these things happen really quickly. And when I see women or couples even express, vocalize, uh, no, you can't take the baby yet. I'd like some time. There is this like energy, there's this resistance, this energy that comes over the entire room where suddenly she's being categorized as this woman who's being irresponsible and she's a threat. And I've seen CPS, Child Protective Services, be called on women actively at their birth because they've refused certain procedures. Um, so that, that for me is, you know, you can get through the labor, you can get through the birth, perhaps unscathed, you can get your unmedicated birth um, in that setting, but then you go into this whole other realm that becomes, now that this baby's outside of you, there's a whole slew of entities that now feel like they, they reign supreme over that being. Well, as while the baby was in you, you still had some sense of ownership and power, but then the baby comes out and it's, it's like, now there's multiple people and mm. now you're the parent, but you, you don't really have the power that you thought you did to protect your child. Yeah, it's almost reminds me of of like an abduction. Uh, these people yeah. that say they're abducted by gray aliens or whatnot. And it's like all these people over you with lights <laughs> going. I mean, that's like the experience they're having. And then they're the vitamin K drops or whatever, which have benzyl alcohol. If I'm saying that right. The, um, erythro the erythromycin antibiotic. Ion. Yeah. So now you're getting yeah. drunk. You're getting shot up and you're like getting probed and. Maybe that's where all these um, supposed uh, abduction um, flashbacks are coming from. Anyways, oh go God, ahead, Bear. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the authoritative aspect is so strong, too. You know, I think it was last week I mentioned the Milgram experiment, which many people are aware of. And that is they took test subjects and had them shocking other people. Mm. And uh, they kept umping the amperage so that the person getting shocked was obviously in great pain. And then the, they would tell the uh, test subject to turn up the juice and do it again. And they wouldn't do it for most people. But then they had a doctor come in the room, give mm. the same orders, and they would do it. Uh, very often they would cry and really not want to do it, but they do it anyway because a doctor told them to do it. And I'm convinced that we're living in one giant milligram experiment right now. Oh, yeah. When you see an entire planet walking around with masks on their face and doing what they're told. So yeah, and, and a little microcosm of that is, uh, you know, perfectly illustrated in the birthing room. Oh yeah. And I see this happen with some of my students or, you know, that they make, they have this entire experience where they're fully empowered during the pregnancy, during the birth, even in postpartum. And then they, they step into the realm of pediatrics and they'll call me crying and say, I took the baby to get the shot. And I get, and I just watched as he cried and writhed in pain and and I'm like, well, why did you do it? And she's like, well, the doctor said, and I'm like, oh my, you know, it's like, it goes against everything that they feel and every fiber of their body and, and knowing. And as soon as the doctor says, you know, she says, I walked in there thinking I wasn't going to do it. But then he told me all these stories about children who didn't get the shot and then what happened to them. And it's like, 
all it took was like one sentence from the man in the white coat, you know, um, for her to then basically watch inflict suffering upon her child willingly, you know. I wish I had a nickel for every time one of my clients told me, well, I didn't want to do it, but the doctor said I had to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, pretty crazy. Uh, you know, it, we say it all the time. If you can, can stay out of the hospitals, you right. know, um, it's sad. It really is. Um, but uh, there's better ways, right? And I think the future is going to be these community centers of birthing centers or community places where women come together and are decentralized, but yet cooperative in the community where you can have that support and it's all holistic and natural and organic, um, just like they used to have in the, you know, indigenous places mm-hmm. where they'd have the birthing, you know, uh, t- uh, teepee or whatever you went in. Yeah, that, they'd have the, the huts, the birthing huts and the, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I, and I'm, yeah, I feel good that people are waking up to this. And um, I mean, so yeah. And, and these mothers in the hospitals right now have to wear a mask while they're laboring. Right? Yeah. Many of them do. And, you know, they'll take their mask off when the nurse leaves the room and then the, the door opens and they're like in the midst of a contraction and they're like, you know, lifting up the mask so they don't get their wrists slapped. And it's just, uh, so their cortisol levels are up and their oh, adrenaline. Yeah. And so now that's pumping that into the baby. Oh, and yeah. so now you've got elevated stress hormones. And the stress hormones are the antithesis to, uh, swift labor to a smooth swift labor you can you know, imagine a, an animal in the wild right it's birthing and it's in the bush and it senses a predator sees a predator in the distance the adrenaline will shoot through the body actually halt the labor so that that animal has the opportunity to find safety and regain the safety you know run maybe a few miles access a safety point and then go back into labor so this is happening all the time in the hospital every time a new person comes in a new nurse is on shift uh your doctor couldn't make it because he's at a golf tournament so then the backup comes you know and that happens to women all the time and what's happening now specific to pandemic is that women have to do pcr testing to go into the hospital and then they have to wait for their husband or partner to be able to come in. And if the partner tests, you know, negative, I mean, positive, he can't come in. If the woman has tested positive, nobody else can come in, not the dual, not the husband. So then she ends up birthing alone with a bunch of strangers. Um, are you knowing, seeing, uh, yeah. are you seeing a, a, a rise because of this nonsense? Are you seeing a rise in uh, people looking to do home births now because they just totally, want to stay? Yeah, totally. Like since March, 2020, I've just been contacted by so many people who are like, I never thought that I would say this. I never thought that I would do this, but I just, I think I'm going to do a home birth. Can you help me? And I'm like, you know, sure. Step into the, <laughs> step into the light over here. It's so, <laughs> uh, so so yeah, there's definitely a rise and, um, but again, it's titrating into it. Right. And it's, it's, um, it, it takes a lot of preparation, a lot of release, um, a lot of reframing of old ideals, um, and archetypes, um, detoxing from Hollywood birth education, you know, so that, and, and that's what I'm saying about meeting people where they are. It's like, okay, I'll do a home birth, but I still want to hold on to these more conventional aspects of reality, right? Okay, so then we kind of shape it that way for them. And then they'll have an awakening, you know, if, if they want. Um, but yeah, the rise is definitely, has definitely been happening since, since the beginning of pandemic, for sure. 
Yeah, the, the positives so, coming out of this are immense. Oh, and, yeah. and how great is it to see, Bear, that a lot these people that are going into natural birthing are themselves rebirthing their own consciousness. Yes. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, I, I've always maintained that being a parent, you get to make over everything from your childhood, you know, to present time. And it's just, it's a, it's a great experience to parents for fixing themselves. I love, we have a question here uh, in the YouTube community, uh, community. My wife and I are planning on having our third child. We have a question regarding labors that don't naturally occur by 42 weeks and how to safely have a natural birth without medical intervention. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So typically, depending on the state that you're in, uh, there are certain markers for like deadlines for when you, you know, you have to go into labor by this date after your due date or else you'll be transferred to conventional care and induced. So it depends on where you are. You know, if you're doing a free birth with no medical um, attendance, then you can decide when you want to have that baby, right? Go into labor spontaneously. Uh, the only thing that I personally recommend is to um, listen to the baby. So you can learn how to do that by training yourself with the stethoscope, just to be in touch with, you know, the baby's heart tones and what's going on. And that's just another way to be connected. It's not really a way to step into the energy of emergent care or anything like that. It's just a way to stay connected to the experience. Um, some people take it the next step and they'll go and actually get an ultrasound, which I, I don't recommend, um, you know, but some people do that. Uh, and if your provider is saying that they're going to induce you or they're going to transfer you to different type of care, then you totally have the option to, you know, fire them and find someone else who can support you if you are working with a medical attendant. Um, the main concern really genuine concern is that after 42 weeks, the placenta will start to calcify a little bit. And when I prepare placentas, because I do placentophagy, I will see that, um, you know, older placentas have more bits of calcium in them. And the issue there is really that if we get over the placenta over calcifies, that it could detach from the uterus. And what, what happens then is that the, the, the oxygen source to the baby's cut off. So that's really the real risk. But for a placenta to fully calcify, I mean, you'd have to be going into like 44 weeks, 45 weeks, uh, you know, gestation. Um, and so that's really the concern. Big baby, you know, if you wait too long, the baby's going to get too big. Those are not genuine concerns of mine, nor should they be of yours. Um, babies are born the size that they're supposed to be born. And the woman can birth that baby because she created that baby. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about, uh, can we talk a little bit about prenatal supplementation? I believe the 12 cell salts would be the most fundamental thing people need to do. And uh, when you're in the womb, you get those cell salts associated with the nine months that you're in the womb, but the three mm -hmm. months, um, you know, between conception and birth, uh, you're a little short change and that can follow you through life. So I would have people um, supplement those three months where the baby wasn't going to be, you know, getting them from mom, uh, getting them while they're actually in the womb. And they seem to really do a lot better, you know, by the time they actually gave birth. And it also would have lasting consequences. So that was just kind of where I would start things off. But 
Um, yeah. What other advice might you have uh, or, or any comments on that or advice you have that you give your clients? Yeah, I actually have a question for you. Did the, did the administering of the cell salts actually improve nausea? Did you notice if that had an effect? On oh, absolutely. Everything. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, including, uh, you know, mom's uh, postpartum letdown and things uh, was mm -hmm. always less severe and, and short-lived. And mm -hmm. of course, any good prenatal care and, you know, taking care of mom and baby is going to go a long way. Yeah. And yeah. the last thing I was just going to mention is, you know, the, the third trimester, the adrenal glands in the baby are very well formed. And what happens very often is because mom may not be in that great a shape and be, you know, vacillating between adrenal fatigue and adrenal alarm, uh, you know, then they start having, um, they start, the baby starts supporting with, uh, with its adrenal hormones actually su uh, supporting the mom. So mm. when the baby is actually born, they're already born in adrenal fatigue. Mm -hmm. uh, or some kind of adrenal deficiency. So that's another thing I'd pay close attention to is just to really make sure the mom's, you know, hormonal system was uh, being addressed so that she wouldn't have to borrow from the baby so much and, you know, compromise the baby before it's even born. I mean, that's kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that's kind of like a black hole as far as the, the adrenal fatigue goes, because the mother would have to reevaluate her entire consciousness completely. And is she living in duality? Is yeah. she living in duality? Because if she's mm -hmm. living in duality in any aspect of her life, she's in survival. And so mm -hmm. is she an integrated being, right? And that mm -hmm. goes beyond de-stressing with a meditation or taking a yoga class. So yeah. There's a whole thing there um, surrounding duality yeah. consciousness and integration and how that affects the baby and ultimately giving it adrenal fatigue by birth. So on a more practical level, as far as what's accessible um, to women now, that's um, not psycho-spiritual, I, I emphasize protein a lot <laughs> uh, because I like to keep the albumin levels high because I like to make sure that women don't fall into preeclampsia, which is really common with women who are low protein. And um, like I mentioned, I touched on it before, a lot of my plant-based clients struggle with getting to the level of protein um, and do, you know, they're, they're eating really well, they're avoiding pollutants and toxicants, and they're, you know, there's no glyphosate in their diet, and it's so clean, and then they have gestational diabetes, preeclampsia. So I emphasize protein, high albumin levels, however you want to get there, um, vitamin A, D, K, I, you know, coming from animal sources, spending a lot of time in the sun every day, uh, moving every single day right? And if it's just walking for an hour a day, that's it. Squatting often, look at how, you know, looking at how indigenous women were moving and resting and standing, um, often in a squat, right? Often in a resting squat, an indigenous resting squat. It's, so it's, it's also about decoding all of the, all of the bad habits that we have. Our entire society is based around chairs and chair sitting. So it's about decoding the body throughout the pregnancy. And it's very easy to do by just choosing a deep resting squat and doing everything in that resting squat. Um, keeping the body mineralized, like you mentioned, um, it's not really about drinking tons of water. It's never really about drinking tons of water. It's about how mineralized are you? Are you drinking complex water? What kind of water are you drinking? Um, 
So those are all the things that I would look at. Um, and I do know I'm a big proponent of an omnivorous diet during pregnancy. Um, even if it's something that you haven't done your entire life, you know, considering this to be something that you're doing for your child, um, I would really just urge people to look at that, look at animal sources. And there's, um, I, I can understand if somebody doesn't want to eat flesh foods, I don't myself. On the other hand, there's a host of other animal byproducts that don't right. require eating flesh, yes. uh, raw dairy and eggs and, and a host of other things. So you can get your protein, you can uh, supplement with, um, uh, you know, first six hour colostrum and things like that, that, uh, you know, so you can get the best of both worlds and not have to be a meat eater too. Exactly. But I agree with you. You, you absolutely have to have your nutrition. And the other thing, uh, you know, in our situation, my wife was an ex jock. So, uh, she was very active. Uh, she was lifeguarding and teaching senior life saving and going to the gym, you know, all the way up until the final days before the birth. And I think, um, you know, that's something a lot of women miss out on. And as a result, uh, maybe fatigue out during the birth process yeah. because they don't have the physical stamina. Yeah. Labor is an, an athletic event, you know, <laughs> Spir spiritual and athletic event. It's a marathon. And yeah. so you're not just going to show up after not having done daily practice, right? You wouldn't do that with a marathon um, that you're running in or biking in. So yeah, the daily movement is essential. You know, I wouldn't start something like CrossFit or something heavy duty if you've <laughs> never done it before. Um, I really love primal movement. I, I work in Gota a lot and it's it doesn't require, you know, coaching every day. It's like you can meet with someone, learn the basics, and then you integrate that into your daily life. And that's going to build strength and it's going to build a lot of elasticity in the body and it's going to open you up for birth. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, that, that daily movement is essential. And what, what, what did you call that? So, GODA? It's called the, the acronym is GODA and it's the greatest of all time athletes. And it's really a movement system that, um, was developed to support, uh, major athletes, uh, NFL, NBA, uh, things like that. However, it's really taken off and everyone is doing it for physical rehabilitation at this point, right? Like I couldn't run at all. I used to be a big runner and I got severe knee pain in my late twenties. And I was like, well, that's it. That's just what happens, I guess. You know, <laughs> but, um, I connected with a coach last year and he was like, you just don't know how to stand. You don't know how to sit and you don't know how to rest and you don't know how to walk. So what we figured out was that my inner ankle bones were collapsed in and indigenous man is actually on the four outer toes. Mm -hmm. And the big toe is a kickstand. There's, there should be no weight or pressure on the big toe. And so when I made this shift in the way that I stand and I walk, I have basically no knee pain at this point. I can say it's been nine months of running, biking, no knee pain. So wow. shifting, the, shifting the pressure wave, um, you know, where the pressure is. And, you know, like right now I'm in a squat <laughs> and I, I just, if I use chairs still, but I sit in a squat. Um, this yeah. is awesome. I'm looking this up right now. I found it godamovement.com. Yes. Um, because I'm a trail runner. I like to run six, seven, eight miles up and down trails and I have been hurting of late and, um, I'm like, Oh, I'm getting old, but I hate, I refuse to believe that. I feel like I'm at the right. prime of, I'm at the prime right now. Yeah. So, um, but I'm having some, no, you're issues. getting old. Bear Lando. 
enough from you. Uh, um, and have you have you heard of the book uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard by um, no. Kelly, Kelly Star- Starrett? Um, similar concept. The idea is we we are uh, to mimic um, nature like you, you don't see uh, as cats as a leopard gets older, it's still running peak performance until it yeah. is taken out by a predator or until it dies. There's nature yeah. is inherently if we our consciousness, we tend to mess ourselves up, right? By doing the wrong stuff and by the technology we use, the type of shoes we wear, that kind of stuff. So I've been, I've been engaging on trying to run on those toes more on that, the front and not heel slamming and, and doing that. But I'm going to check this out. Thanks for bringing that up. I've never heard of this greatest of oh, all time and, athletes. Yeah. It's incredible. In, in it's the, an incredible movement system. In the martial arts community, we mimic animal movements a lot. And, uh, you know, where we're literally crawling on the ground, you know, making different movements. And it's a great neurological exercise plus conditioning. You know, it's actually tiring when you're, you know, doing reps back and forth on the floor, you know, but uh, I would consider that uh, just great since we have all the animal kingdom programmed into us uh, embryologically when we're going through all the developmental stages. We're born with it. I mean, look, just observe Mm -hmm. children. I mean, the way babies crawl, Mm -hmm. right? So part of Goda is learning how to crawl again. And you're, Mm -hmm. I can, Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my mind is exhausted after 25 minutes. It's like (laughs) really incredible, but so just observe children, right? They go down into a resting squat. That's how they do things. That's how they do activities. And we slowly train it out of them, you know, sit in the chair, sit up straight, you know, do this, put your feet together and then ballet. I mean, I did years of ballet and Mm -hmm. it was all decoding my body from what was natural for me. And so, you know, you, Mm. you injure, you injure yourself with, with modern design. And so this is just bringing awareness to the body and using modern design to your advantage. You know, there's no reason that you have to like live, you know, live in a hut and have no furniture. That's not what I'm saying. It's really just learning how to work with what you have. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And to illustrate how powerful that is, I saw a lot of um, damaged kids from the, you know, injection stuff. Mm. And um, one of the things, you know, we'd have to do a lot of internal work and everything to neutralize those substances, but uh, at least equally important was to redevelop their nervous system from day one. So if the, no matter what age the kid was, is we would take them through the basic crawling in every stage all the way up, you know, that you normally go through. And we do that daily in a very rigorous way. And it would recover and retrain the neurology and these kids would, um, become normal most of them yeah it's why i don't like strollers or like these contraptions Mm -hmm. or these little bouncy things or these things with wheels Mm -hmm. you know it's like i Mm -hmm. encourage people not to use those baby wear you know is baby wearing is great or just having your kid on the ground crawling around Mm -hmm. right not you know not in the cages i call them cages um which i guess is maybe triggering for some people, but whatever, uh, the cages, you know, because that's where we put our kids. I, I, I don't want to adjust the way that my house is. So I'm going to put this kid in a cage over here, a playpen, and that's where it's going to live. And it's just kind of, it's like a fish in a bowl. You know, there is no opportunity to develop and flourish in that environment. They're not learning about levels and movement and materials and density at all. So um, we're actually stunting that neurological development um, in so many ways with these contraptions. 
And while we're covering every uh, stage of development here, potty training is a big thing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, our kids were brought up in a natural environment and it was very rural. So they were able to run around without any clothes on outside and they would see what their bodily functions were doing. Yeah. They could see what, you know, what was happening, what was coming out of their body. And, you know, it wasn't this big prolonged thing of using diapers forever. They just caught on real quick because they could actually see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I really encourage cloth diapering. If people mm -hmm. don't have the, the, you know, the access to a yard or a garden where they can really, you know, just tell their kid to go out there and, and use that as the space for training, um, cloth diapering, you know, and it's, it's amazing how the mind works because as soon as the child has a sensation to urinate, they'll urinate and then they'll feel wet and cold. And so they really quickly from a few months old, make the connection that the sensation to urinate, urinating and feeling cold is all part of one stream. Yeah. If they're wearing these disposable diapers, they could urinate four or five times before they actually feel wet. So there's a disconnect that happens there. So I do see that cloth diaper children are potty trained much more quickly. Um, having your child come into the bathroom with you every single time, you know, going outside, letting the child be nude uh, for as long as possible so that they can see how their body works and how their body changes and how they can interact with the environment to have bowel movements and urinate. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing how, how and no doubt that Yeah, exactly. And no doubt the disposables now are probably impregnated with graphene and reptilian oh. DNA or something. <laughs> Don't get me started. I know yeah. Di diaper rashes should not exist. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's difficult if you're formula feeding, of course, because the pH of those bowel movements is just messed up and it's going to affect the child's, um, you know, not only the yeah. urine and the bowel movements, but just that pH is going to affect the child's skin. Um, so if you're breastfeeding and you have the opportunity for your baby to just be free, you know, allow your baby to urinate on itself, right? If it's crawling around, it's moving. That's how it's going to learn. It's going to say, oh, I had the, the desire to urinate. I urinated. I got wet. What's the other solution? It's crawling to the bathroom. It's crawling to this other place that's designated for urinating, right? Um, but yeah, diaper rash should not exist. And if it does, it's because your child is in moisture all day and in God knows what else with disposable diapers. Yeah, yeah we, we, won't, we won't go into the entire skincare industry for children. It's just really uh, satanic. <laughs> oh, man, it's everywhere you look. Yeah. Um, yeah. well, Hey, this has been a, a very illuminating conversation and I feel like we could talk for hours and I'd love to have you back on Ayla to go even deeper into the esoterics of the birth itself. And, um, well, we, we didn't even cover like law and, and all that, right. How that's yeah. all related. But one thing, if you do, so, you know, some people that are doing home births have had to, they've had stuff come up where they say that, well, we had to go to the hospital. Um, you know, they didn't have the support there maybe, right. They didn't have the, the, the midwife, uh, and maybe they got freaked out and they went to the hospital and then now they're in this circus. The one thing I think it's important to remember everyone is everything is just offers still they're mm -hmm. all offers. So it's good though, to have, and I don't know if you've worked at all with, with women on this, with affidavits and having that, that paperwork on hand, if they do, they don't plan to go to the hospital, but for some weird reason they have to go to have something uh, to back them up so that what they can better counter these offers. If I'm making sense here. 
Yeah, I've had actually some women work with attorneys that they decline, like preemptively decline. So it basically counters all the paperwork that they're supposed to sign at the hospital when they check in. So they're basically listing what they decline and what they won't agree to already. Um, and, you know, it, it's different for every woman. So, yeah, if you, you know, in the event that a transfer does happen, which is possible for anyone, um, having that, you know, if you have strong convictions around those procedures, having that readily available, I, I do recommend that. Yeah. What, one other comment about that sort of uh, thing is that we've had in the past very good evidence that the DNA is collected in the delivery room. And mm -hmm. that does get shipped off somewhere and it is copyrighted. Of course, the, the vit, vit thing that they're doing now is, you know, just like Monsanto having a legal claim on anybody yeah. who, you know, gets the stuff drifting into their farm. Uh, you know, they've got another copyright claim actually on our biology. And if people don't think that's real, it is. That's a fact. It's very real. They're drawing so much blood from the baby after birth. Every six hours they're mm -hmm. coming in, they're drawing blood. They're doing it just to run tests so that they can make sure that the baby's okay and that baby's doing well. I mean, all of these very like nebulous <laughs> excuses, right. That they, that they give. Um, and it happens with the placenta. So they say, you know, it's birth waste, right. The, the umbilical cord, the placenta, that's actually getting shipped to stem cell therapy companies that are using it to create the medications that a lot of these, a lot of people are integrating into sports medicine, into various therapies, pre-surgery, post-surgery for hip replacements. I mean, that's all coming from placentas that get discarded after birth, you know, sure. They're not being sold to these companies they're being donated, but then the exchange really could be that these companies are donating money to this hospital to build a new wing, to build, you know, whatever it is, however they want to infuse the funds. Um, so yeah, just be cognizant that uh, DNA is getting collected and um, a lot of the beautiful and powerful things that your body created are being used um, in these nefarious ways that no one's going to tell you about. Good stuff. Well, I think it's very apparent if you are listening to this or watching this and you are expecting or um, looking to conceive, um, yeah start now planning to not be in a hospital. Um, it's more important than ever, um, as now they're already talking about younger and younger uh, in injections uh, that are getting supposedly approved, right? So um, yeah, uh, uh, find a midwife or doula or contact Ayla here. Ayla, what's the best way to uh, reach you? Just go to my website, aylacuenca.com. Um, that's the best way to reach me and, you know, whatever point you're at on your journey, even if you're just conceptualizing this and want more information, um, I have classes, offerings, videos, things that can just start like getting you into this space and in this understanding. And if you have a family member who, you know, is going through this process, um, I'm happy to share whatever information I can so that you can support them, you know? Wonderful. And I'll put Amazing. the, I'll put the link uh, in the show notes below. So for those that are watching, um, you can uh, directly link to Ayla's website and um, get more information. So uh, thanks everybody. Uh, Ayla, any parting words for our community uh, as, especially for those expecting um, that are in the chat and stuff, uh, some words of wisdom or positive thoughts here as we end this transmission. 
Yeah, I just, I want everyone to remember that this is the perfect time to be having your baby. Love this that. The, Thank you for that. Time. That's that's amazing advice. And um, yeah, it's so important to have incoming souls that are consciously birthed. Uh, they are our future. And I hear so many young people now saying, well, I don't want to bring a child into this world when in fact that is the solution for everything that ails us and thank you so much for being with us this was uh, uh just a brilliant talk and um i think it sets us up perfectly for part two where we can get into some real fun stuff um as far as what's going on on other levels with all this uh you know birthing and and what the incoming is really up to behind the scenes and the support group behind the veils and you know how we're all kind of in cahoots over there. Yeah. And uh, that'll, that'll be a great part too. So we'd love to have you back again. Absolutely, I would love to do it. Fantastic. And everybody, thanks for listening, joining in on the chat, uh, following us along. Um, we, If we didn't get to your question, um, you could always uh, propose it on our Telegram, which I didn't even mention today. You can, If you're new to this, uh, please join our community on Telegram at t.me forward slash alpha Vedic. Uh, and um, Ayla, are you in our Telegram? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So you could even ping her at Ayla. Uh, she'll pop up and ask her questions there. Um, mm -hmm. It's an amazing place to find uh, comfort in. And um, there's nothing uh, taboo really in that chat, except for just don't be a dick. But um, it's a, but it's a, it's a really a cool um, space to discuss truth and go there. So um, join us there or in our Discord at discord.com forward slash alphavedic. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Um, we love you. And as I always say, don't forget to get outside, get your feet in the dirt, plant something. Um, I've got my winter beds cranking right now. We're going to get some sun it looks like today bear i'm gonna get outside and try to get some gardening done but yeah get outside go for a hike mother nature truly is our best teacher we love you and we'll see you next week cheers